3: I genuinely thought you had an opportunity for me, like journalism.
1: I thought, this sounds cool. (laughs) This sounds like my ticket to a huge Vice show. sounded like a multi-level marketing scheme, but for drug trafficking.
3: Oh, this is like Vice. Like, why am I being like a snitch about this?
1: This is absolutely a story about an important and growing and, and powerful media entity. There are no villains in this story. There's no winners, but there's no villains.
2: I'm Kasia
0: Mihailovich, and this is Cole Mules. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children.
3: It was terrible how he planned it and the way he did it, but in the research... He did it for a very specific reason, and so that the blame would be put onto his wife should they ever be discovered.
4: It's a winter's day in July 1970, and a white F.E. Holden is noticed teetering perilously on a cliff edge at Lockhart Gorge on Victoria's southwest coast. When police and search and rescue scale the cliff to rescue the car, they make a horrifying discovery. In the car, wrapped in blankets, are the bodies of a mother and her three children. Teresa Crawford, who was pregnant. Catherine, age 12. James, age 8. And little Karen, who's age 6. Husband and father Alma Crawford was nowhere to be found. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Greg Fogarty was fascinated by this case ever since he was a boy growing up in the suburb Glenroy in Melbourne's inner north where the Crawford family also lived. Years later he decided to write a book about the case, researching it, and putting out ads in newspapers asking for anyone who remembered the case or had any links to it to contact him. The result was a book almost perfect. I spoke to Greg from his home in Colorado about these shocking murders and the vanishing of Alma, who meticulously planned and killed his own family and tried to fake his own death, although he didn't account for an invisible ledge or some nosy neighbours.
3: So the murders were in Cardinal Road in Glenroy, and uh, they were at number 136, and we were at number 39, but it was such big news at the time, and it was just one of those things which, you know, the nine-year-old suddenly sort of preoccupied me. You know, we would go up there and look at the house every opportunity, and I, I don't know why. I don't know whether it was a morbid fascination or more curiosity, because it was kind of so unbelievable. Well, I think initially, you know, it was not. I was nine, so you know, I I read everything I could on it, and I questioned my parents, you know, very heavily about it. And we used to play squash on the weekends up in Broadmeadows, and to get there we had to drive past the Crawford House, and I would always ask Dad to slow down every time on the way there and on the way back. It was just one of those things that, and you know, the house was empty probably for about four years after the crime, and. It just sat there and the grass got longer and it was just one of those places that kind of, you know, occupied my home imagination. It was no. kind of a, a a non-disgusting. We would we would ride our bikes up there and just hang out there and look at the house from the street. And very often we were, we were told to get lost by, by the neighbours because it was kind of a sore point.
4: Mm.
3: You know, it was a very, it was the focus, certainly in the early days, it was the focus of Melbourne and I guess if you happen to be unlucky enough to live next door or behind them or across the street, you know, it's not very good. So.
4: And I guess, Pete, you would have had a lot of movement in the street after the murders and people coming and having a look at the house. Absolutely. You said that you were reading the newspapers or seeing, was it massive news at the time in the newspapers?
3: It was huge news. Yes, it was. It was absolutely massive news. And I can actually remember asking my parents... Would Dad ever kill us? And, of course, we were told, that'd be ridiculous. But, but that was the kind of impact it had on our, you know, on our psyche. Tell us
4: a bit about the family who lived at this house.
3: It was the Crawford family, and Elmer was an immigrant from Northern Ireland. He and his brother came out here to Australia, I believe, about 10 years prior to that. And his wife, Teresa, she was actually a nurse as well, and... She was from Ipswich in Queensland, and she came from a very large family in Ipswich, but she moved to Melbourne to pursue her nursing career, and that's where she met Crawford. So, yeah, they basically had a whirlwind romance, and I believe it was because she was pregnant with their eldest daughter at the time, so they got married very quickly and built the house in Cardinal Road. I mean, they built that house, or he built that house. And, yeah, they were a pretty ordinary family. People always said he was a bit of an an enigma. He was very quiet. Uh, He didn't have much to do with, you know, the day-to-day. He was more the wife and the people, the kids. And they were an interesting family.
4: They struck me as being quite ordinary. But, yeah, you did paint that picture of Elmer being somewhat of a loner, a bit grumpy, but also a family under some financial pressure. But as you revealed later, they actually had a little bit of money, didn't they?
3: They had a lot of money for the... Well, Elmo had a lot of money for the time. Uh, they owned the house in Cardinal Road outright. He had three blocks of land in Queensland, supposedly one for each of the children. And he also had $6,000 in the bank, which, you know, 1970, that was a lot of money. Yeah. And he was an unqualified electrician, and he worked for the Victorian Racing Commission as an, as an unqualified uh, telephone mechanic. So, yeah, he had a garage, yeah, chopped stock full of stuff, like, you know, you could barely get into it. But he was also a crook on the side. He worked for Flemington Racecourse as well, and he would steal things from there. He would skim money off the parking fees that he would collect off people coming to see the races. And he also used to steal copper wire Mm. from his employer, and he would burn off the insulation and then go around to these places that don't exist in Melbourne, they're kind of like auction houses, and he would sell off the copper. And he'd done that for years. And so uh, he was a thief as well. And, and again, I think this is what happened. Why he made the decision to kill them was that Teresa knew about this. I, I spoke to some friends of the family; they knew about it because she told me when I interviewed her that a lot of the wiring in her house had been done by Crawford. With stolen stuff.
4: He seemed a very odd person.
3: Yeah, he was. He he really didn't interact in the in the broader community very much even the people who'd worked with him at Flemington had said, you know, we worked next to him for years. And we knew nothing about him. And we would try, you know, normal work bands where people ask, you know, where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. And apparently he would just blow them off and uh, kept himself very, very secretive. But then those friends I spoke to also told me there was a different side because people thought he was a very quiet and, dem- and demure sort of man. And, These people I interviewed said there was the one time where something went wrong with his car that he'd just fixed. He was so angry he got out a tyre lever from the car and smashed in all the panels on the doors, the the bonnet, the boot, in a fit of rage. And nowhere in the police reports or the police interviews did they ever say that Crawford was anything other than a quiet, sort of mousy kind of guy. But these friends of his gave me a very different story.
4: Wow. And did you track those friends down from,
3: did they answer the ad? They answered an ad. Wow. And the funny thing is the police had never spoken to them, Mm. which I found very interesting.
4: And so when um, obviously this predates social media when you were writing this book, I actually love yeah. that idea that you put ads in the paper. It's very, very old school. I love it. Um, these love. days you, you put a blast out on Facebook. But I think I always find that um, sort of a bit of a sign that, yeah, you you should keep pursuing the project that you're working on because, um, you know, those, those – uh, did you find that people wanted to talk about um, – the, what they'd experienced at the time or, you know, what they knew?
3: It was a mixed bag. A lot of the people who lived around around the house wanted to talk. Some wanted money to talk because for some reason, you know, you're writing a book so suddenly you're going to make, you know, millions of dollars. Yeah, um,
4: yeah, that's true. And <laughs> the actual fact is that it's a, they're really mainly passion projects, aren't they really?
3: Absolutely, yeah. 100%. I contacted people in Northern Ireland. Who, who did speak to me. They weren't very detailed. They were very elderly. And they basically said to me that Elmer was missing. That was their take on it, that Elmer was missing. Right. Not that he killed his family, but that he was missing. And Teresa's family were very reluctant to speak. Um, and, you know, I, I offered them editorial rights. Like, you know, I would put in however they wanted to say stuff. Yep. but they wouldn't speak to me. Um, a neighbour gave me most of the information I got about Teresa, but one of her brothers did contact me and said he wanted to speak to me. And he told me a very interesting fact: that two weeks before the murder, the eldest daughter was due to go to his property up in New South Wales because she liked horses, and he had a, he had a a farm with a couple of horses on it. And El Elma wouldn't let her go, and he said to me on the phone, he he said that I know now why the bastard wouldn't let her go because he was planning on killing them. And uh, that was really all I got out of her family. Yeah. They were very reluctant for some reason. Uh, I don't know why. The children were,
4: at the time, two girls and a boy. What were their ages?
3: Yeah, so Catherine was the eldest. She was 12 at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Then the boy was second, James was eight, and Karen was six. And
4: Teresa was pregnant at the time, wasn't she?
3: I, that's correct, yeah. Teresa was about three months pregnant at the time she was murdered.
4: The news of the new baby wasn't particularly a joyous announcement, was it, for the family?
3: Well, I think it was for Teresa. But the thing was, I don't believe... When when she had the youngest daughter, she had a, a nervous breakdown, basically, you know, postnatal depression. And it was a very difficult time. She actually went back to Queensland for a little while. And I think Elmer found it very stressful. Anyway, so when she got pregnant, then they didn't know this, well, this is all supposition, but she'd written a, a partially written a letter to her sister who lived in Queensland, sort of bemoaning the fact she was pregnant and that Alma wanted her to have an abortion. Now, Teresa was a very strict Catholic, and, of course, that was out of the question. And I believe, too, that Alma wanted her to be on the pill or on some sort of birth control, and as a Catholic, she didn't and he wasn't aware of that. And so the pregnancy was probably a surprise.
2: A lot can happen in the next three years. like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. to find out if it's right for you.
0: Thank you to the following patrons Adriana Corti, Jackie, Simone Hurlinger, Rebecca Charlton, Jessica Baxter Coming up on Australian True Crime, what Elmer did next. But first, a heartfelt thanks to you, all of our patrons. A heartfelt thanks. But first, a heartfelt thanks to all of our new patrons. Thank you so much for signing up now of all times. And thank you to all of our patrons who are finding a way to stay with us. We really appreciate it. We've also instituted a new tier. It's $1 a month. Hopefully that will help you help us to keep this show on the road. And you can sign up at patreon.com Forward slash Ost True Crime Pod. There's a link in the show notes to this episode and also on Facebook. And we hope you'll swing by Facebook just to hang out, where we also have the amazing photo of the Crawford family car dangling precariously from the ledge in Lockhart Gorge.
4: I wanted to give a shout out to two listeners, sisters Morgan and Shanna. Shanna, I hope your health is improving. Now, here's Greg Fogarty, author of Almost
3: Perfect. But I believe anyway that when when Teresa got pregnant, Crawford has told her that she has to have an abortion. And I believe Teresa has countered that with if you make me have an abortion, I'm gonna report your, your stealing. Right, yeah. And I believe that was the catalyst that set him set his plans in motion.
4: What happened to Teresa and the children?
3: Well, basically, uh, the father he decided he was gonna kill them and he wanted to do it in a way where he, I believe he thought the bodies would never be found and he would be able to sell the house and move on. And he was a, a frequent visitor to Lockhart Gorge. That was sort of his getaway spot. And where was that? So he went um, down in south of Western Victoria. About, I think it's about 300 kilometres away, 250 kilometres away. And it's an area where, you know, you've got, towering cliffs and and basically a very, very unforgiving ocean below it. And um, anyway, he decided he killed them in a manner that would make it look, if, if on the rare or on the unlikely event the car ever got found or the bodies were ever found, I believe it would look like he did it so it would look like the wife did it. And this is why I could never understand. So the way he killed them, he knocked his wife unconscious. So she didn't have any physical injuries. Per se, and then he electrocuted her. He made these devices with an alligator clip on one end and a plug on the other end. He changed one of the fuses in the fuse box. He replaced the fuse wire with a normal strand of normal electrical wire so it wouldn't blow. And uh, he attached one of the alligator clips to his wife's earlobe and the other one between her thumb and uh, forefinger, and turned the power on, and electrocuted her. And with the kids. He also electrocuted the children, but before he did that, he fractured their skulls with hammer blows. He'd removed the back seat weeks earlier, put the bodies in there and drove down to Port Campbell one night and pushed the car off a cliff at the point called the blowhole. And the car went off the cliff, but unbeknownst to him, there was a very small ledge down the bottom and the car landed on that ledge and it was basically balancing where you could go up and with one hand push it into the ocean. It didn't go in. He'd even rigged the car up with a hose to make it look like whoever had driven it off the cliff had gassed themselves. And I couldn't figure out why he went to all this trouble. And the whole point was, obviously, let's say 10 years down the track the car was found with the bodies, which would be by then reduced to skeletons. The only ones with physical injuries would be the children. And so because Teresa didn't have any, she didn't have a fractured skull or anything. And so once all the skin was gone, the burns from the electricity would would have also gone. And uh, that's, I believe, what he had planned and Um, why he did it the way he did it.
4: One of, is it Catherine, the eldest girl's friends had popped around to the house and he'd answered the door and kind of fobbed her off. Tell us about that.
3: Well, okay, that's right. Brenda Connor was her name. She would collect Catherine every day for their walk to school. And this was the morning. So Crawford's pushed the car off the cliff, come back to the house. He's literally been up all night after killing his family and driving a lawyer down to Port Campbell, pushing the car off, driving back to Melbourne. And next thing, there's a knock on the door at, I don't know, seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning. And it's Brenda Connor to collect Catherine to go to school. When Crawford told her that she was sick. He never answered the door. He never opened the door fully, which she found kind of odd, and she'd always thought he was kind of creepy. And the thing that chilled me was she told me that when she left and she walked back down the driveway, back to the street and started walking up, she'd noticed Crawford watching her out of this, you know, door open, maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 centimetres, like peering at her out of the door. As she walked away, and that kind of struck me as really. Then she told me, "I'm like, wow, oh, that's really, that's really creepy."
4: And that must have been a terrible thing for her throughout her life to have known that she went to collect her best friend and that her yeah. best friend had been killed so yeah. tragically. Did she talk to you much about the lasting impact
3: that that had had? She did a little bit. They were her. Her mother kind of stopped her talking to me. That's going to talk to me because of. The trauma that, that Brenda had experienced as a result. I don't think her mother wanted her to relive it.
4: Yeah.
3: Alma went back to the house after he dumped the bodies and started to clean up the blood and mess inside the house. And unbeknownst to him, somebody who knew or well, who had seen him before saw him on the day the car was discovered. How was the car discovered, Greg? Some tourists were, we're down at at Port Campbell just looking at the scenery and they walked up. Well, what they first noticed when they pulled up, they noticed some tyre tracks off the pathway that went up to the cliff edge and they thought that was kind of odd. So they followed them up and when they got to the edge and looked over, they saw the car down there balanced on the ledge.
4: And it was quite the rescue so. operation, wasn't it, to actually get this car?
3: Yeah, it was a huge res- rescue operation. Some people went down the first day. They didn't touch the car or get inside the car. But they went down there, they secured it to a certain degree, but they couldn't really, they were very worried it was going to go over the cliff during the night. And then the next day they had a full on where they went down and tied the car back and pulled it away from the edge and discovered the bodies.
4: So Elmer was spotted. He obviously was at home thinking the car had gone off the cliff. Who spotted him?
3: It was a brother and sister who used to drive past the house. The reason they were had looked at the house specifically was, I think it was a couple of weeks Elmer was in, the process of preparing for the murders, he did a massive clean-out where he burnt masses of stuff. He had massive fires going in the backyard. And these people happened to be driving past one of these days and noticed the flames were so high from the street they could see the flames shooting over the roof of the house from the backyard. So after that, they always made a point of just looking at the house. So they happened to be driving past the house and there was Crawford out the front. And this happened to be the day. The car had been found, but nobody knew what had happened yet. And when it broke in the papers, the sister had grabbed the head, I think it was the Herald Sun or the Herald, whatever it was called back then, and taken it to her brother and shown him the headline and said, look, that's the guy we saw at the front of the house. Because They had a picture of Crawford on the front page. So that, that was a really interesting part of the story.
4: Yeah, I find it fascinating when people look back at investigations and find that it was a bit wanting. Do you think they first believed that the whole family was in the car?
3: There was that thought because with the ABC helping, they actually reenacted it. They purchased an identical car. They loaded it up with sand-filled dummies that approximated the weights of the three kids and Teresa and pushed it over the cliff again. They added had an additional dummy in there, which was supposed to be Crawford, because they wanted to see if he would have been ejected and thrown into the ocean, and it, and the dummy was not. There's actually some footage out there. If you look on the internet, somewhere there's some footage, old ABC footage of the, the reenactment of the car going off the cliff. The the rescue guy, he found the bodies. The, what they did, they, they attached a cable to the car, and they had a, a tractor up on the top of the cliff, and the tractor pulled the car well away from the cliff. And then once it was secured, uh, Lana opened the the back door, and the first thing he saw was some teeth. Mm -hmm. and as he pulled out, there was a a dirty old tarp and a whole lot of other junk in the car. As he pulled that out, he suddenly realised that there were multiple sets of feet, and I couldn't imagine it. There was actually a report on the day that a car had been found over a cliff, and the registration number had been traced to a house in Glenroy. But that was it, and they they didn't have any more info because the police didn't break into the house, I think, until about midnight. They went around to the house the day the car was found at around seven o'clock at night. Crawford was in the house at the time, and he didn't answer. So the police went away. And then I believe somebody made the, the decision, hey, listen, we need to go back and look inside that house. Something's not right. So they went back around midnight that night and broke into the house, and that's when they found the, the evidence that something really bad had happened.
4: Had he fled before he'd cleaned the house properly because he thought he'd been spotted, or had he sort of made an attempt at getting rid of what had happened?
3: He'd started to clean up. They, they found, I don't know if you remember them, they were carpet shampoo that came in a can, a pressurised can, and it had like a brush on the lid. Mm-hmm. So they found one of those in the living room, and a lot of the blood stains in the hallway were wet where he'd started to, to use this his cleaner to clean up the blood. But I believe the cops have come and knocked on the door at 6 o'clock, so between then and when they came back is when he's, he's taken off. The interesting thing is he also had a loaded rifle in the car, and I believe that was probably on the off chance that he got interrupted, because I can't think of any other reason why why he would have it. Everybody was dead. He wasn't shooting them. It just It just struck me as really really odd he'd even cancelled this is how detailed he was he'd cancelled back back in those days you got bread delivered and milk delivered and he would cancelled those and he, he had also put a stop on the mail
4: i'm assuming a, a nationwide manhunt
3: I know they notified Interpol and I believe at the time you could travel to New Zealand without a passport and that was one of the escape routes the police kind of said to me that there was a possibility you know he planned he planned it very meticulously, so they said there's no reason to think why he wouldn't have a a plan B in case something went wrong. And, of course, he was a Canadian. Yeah, Canadian. He was born in Canada, even though he grew up in Northern Ireland, so they said there's always the possibility as well. He went either to, to Canada or back to, to Ireland. But the thing that gets me about this, they have no clue. They really had no clue where he went it's all speculation.
4: I guess back then you don't have the monitoring of movements that you have now. You know there was no biometric right.
3: passports. Or there were something. really no computers. Yeah. You know your bank, your banking, for example, was handwritten into the bank books. Yep. So there was no electronic record of anything. Yeah, it, it's quite frustrating trying to figure out what he did. One of the one of the things was that he'd gone to Western Australia to a remote part of Western Australia. There were always sightings of him and rumours. And then when Sensing Murder did an episode on it, they found this woman. Actually, it was the woman from one of those auction houses that Crawford used to sell the copper to. Anyway, this woman was in Perth on holidays and was sitting in a restaurant or a cafe somewhere and said to her husband, oh, my God, that's Alma Crawford. They spoke to him and he denied it, of course. She said, no, I'm not. The the, the silly thing was, the woman didn't want to interrupt the holiday, so she didn't report that to the police until two weeks later when she was back in uh, Melbourne. And interestingly enough, I've had this guy contact me a lot over the past few years who claims that he knows and he worked with Crawford up in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. And this guy was adamant, and he... Sent me great big written letters of why he thought it was Crawford. Anyway, the ABC got onto this some years ago and they were going to interview him and do a story on it. And I believed him. He sent me photos, and this guy he'd photographed looked like I'd imagine Crawford would look like at you know 75 years old or whatever it was. But the ABC, the reporter from the ABC said to me that. This guy had a history of mental issues and all of that, and so they, they weren't going to do a story on him. Mm. And so it basically just faded, into, faded away. And he told me, he, he stopped communicating with me because he got sick of being told he was an idiot or told, you know, it wasn't true. He went as far as contacting the family of this guy He found some relatives and they, of course, you know, denied it. I don't know. He was adamant. And this guy had an Irish accent and wouldn't discuss where he came from and all sorts of stuff. It was very interesting.
4: After the coroner's inquest, do you believe that the case kind of faded out of memory? Did people just stop looking for Elmer?
3: Look, I, I don't like disparaging the police. I met some of the detectives who worked on the case. and They were very, very nice people. But when I went to the homicide squad, I, I, I applied through the media liaison unit to get access to the Crawford files, which took a year, and they gave me access. And I flew down to Melbourne, and they set me up with a desk, and there were two boxes on the on the desk. And then at the last minute, they said, "No, you can't look at them. We'll have someone sit there, mm. and you can ask questions, but you can't take notes, you can't take photos." So what I what what astounded me about what was in those boxes was they had nothing. They had clippings out of the post. They had Elmer's Red Cross blood donation card. But that's all they didn't have anything. That's strange. They had so little information. I found more information. I found more people that the police had ever spoken to, which I found really, really odd.
4: Where do you think Elmer is or was I mean whether he's still alive, what do you think happened?
3: It's hard to say. I doubt he's still alive. He would be, he'd be pushing 90 now, I believe. He was 40 at the time. So, yeah, 50 years ago. The 50th anniversary is coming up, actually. And uh, I believe the Western Australia sightings over the years are probably the most credible. Mm-hmm. So, I believe, you know, it's probably quite possible back then. I think what well, the population of Western Australia, Matthew's date back then was probably half a million. Mm-hmm. So, he's gone way up north. There's nobody there. Nobody's going to question you. So I, I really think Western Australia is probably the most credible place that he went. And given that over the years there were sightings of him there in various places, and then, of course, that woman, the most recent one, who uh, neglected to tell the police until two weeks later. So so that's, that's what I think. I, I believe that's what happened. But the only only saving grace was he never got any of the money. He couldn't sell the house or the blocks of land.
0: We'll be back next week, of course. And until then, remember, we're all having good days and bad days, but it's very important that we keep communicating with each other and don't get too isolated in isolation. Thank you to the following patrons, Claire Roche, Jane Cook, Ashley Adam, Sarah Brady and Renee Maher. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime made in partnership with the ACAST Creator Network.
1: That's stamps.com. Code program.
0: As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly. So be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you update for brisbane australian true crime fans brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show